0: So we were talking about the mighty works of God and the ways that the Spirit has been working visibly and surprisingly in our life. And and I'm thinking to myself, as soon as Albert says, now you can really lift up your heads and sing, I thought, oh, Albert, come on, man, don't ask too much. but. The Spirit humbled me as I saw many heads lifted up to the point that my neck hurt. Because heads were being lifted up so high. I praise the Lord. That is a beautiful hymn. We'll be looking at uh, Genesis chapter 6 today. As we continue our Lenten series in which we're uh, tracing... um, the planting and the growth of sin and its consequences in our lives and in the life of the world as we lead up to um, the celebration of Christ's uh, crucifixion and resurrection. It is important for us to be reminded why such a horrendous event was necessary and how it is that it's a demonstration to us of God's great love for us, as well as His holiness, justice, and mercy. So read with me, if you will, Genesis chapter six, the first eight verses. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man men, of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens, for I am so sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord, and so we give thanks to him. Indeed, it is the good word, the good news of the Lord to us, his people in this place at this time. So let us ask that by his spirit, he would grant us eyes to see and ears to hear. And so, Father, we come to this, your word, and we pray that by the powerful working of your spirit, you would strengthen us to hear you speak, you would strengthen us to see before us the record of your mighty acts, and that we would find unfolding in front of us the very faithfulness of your character that comes to such glorious fruition in the person and the life of Jesus Christ. For it is by him that we are made alive, and so it is in his name that we come and we pray these things. Amen. I have to confess that um, as I began getting into this passage this week, I thought, what was I thinking? I should have made Clay preach this one. (laughs) Sons of God and daughters of man and Nephilim, oh my word. But alas, here we are. I want you to know, uh, many of you know me, but you will probably be surprised to find out that I am absolutely, passionately committed to exercise. I am an exercise machine. I am. I'm very diligent and intentional about it. It's a passion of mine. It's just who I am. It's like it draws me toward it like it's my destiny. I exercise regularly, whenever and wherever I want. After all, exercise, so they say, is good for the body. And it's good for the soul. Everyone knows this. Which is why for most of my life, I would diligently exercise at every opportunity, about once a quarter or so, whenever and whenever and wherever I felt like it. And had nothing better to do. Which is why I didn't think anything of it one day when during a long season in my mid-40s when I had had many better things to do. I challenged my son and his little league basketball team to a full-court suicide. (laughs) Now, Some of you may not know what a suicide is, but it's a training exercise that basketball players sometimes use, although it's considered cruel and unusual punishment now. It's outlawed by the Geneva Convention. It's a, uh, it's a sprint. You sprint from baseline to foul line to baseline to midline back to baseline to opposite foul line back to baseline to opposite baseline back to baseline. Eight, nine years old, I could whip them. It just about killed me. And I spent... He's laughing at me. I spent the next hour and a half sprawled out on the bleachers. <laughs> on another day, about the same time, because I'm so passionate about exercise, I jumped on my bicycle and set off at a pretty good clip up Guild Trail. It looks level, <laughs> but it's not right on through Ruby Falls parking lot, on around until I got to the Craven's house where I sprawled out on the grass and seriously contemplated calling 911 and texting Mako, I love you, see you in heaven. I decided that my passion for diligent, regular exercise whenever and wherever the urge hit me, on average about once or twice a quarter, is for the birds. It's crazy. Exercise will kill you. Did you know that? So my advice to you is stay away from exercise. It's life-threatening. Sorry, Reba. I just, destroyed, I just destroyed your whole career in one word. By the way, this is a public service announcement for those who are not tracking with me. This is satire. Please do not go to school tomorrow and tell your PE teacher that your pastor said she's trying to kill you. Sadly, my dreams and my plans and my design for exercise simply don't square with the reality of my middle-aged body in the world in which we live. So I've given up on exercise. So people have told me that dieting is a better way to improve and prolong your life. And so I've started the whole Whole30 thing. But I'm not doing that simple one that most of you guys are doing. I am pursuing a highly regimented, highly disciplined variation of Whole30 that requires strict attentiveness. I'm pursuing the Whole30 in 30-minute increments. (laughs) 30 minutes on, 30 minutes off. For 30 minutes, I eat. Well, for those of you who are familiar with Whole30, I eat nothing. since I strictly follow, because I'm a disciplined guy, the Ten Commandments of the whole 30 thing, which, in summary, says don't eat ever anything. Then, for 30 minutes, but only 30 minutes because I'm strictly disciplined, I enjoy broccoli cheddar soup in a bread bowl, Followed by Bee's famous banana pudding and Mako's blueberry pie, but strictly for 30 minutes. It doesn't seem to be working, though. I feel worse and I'm getting fat, (laughs) which my bicycle can tell you. Careful, disciplined, intentional dieting, it seems. Can also kill you. Another public service announcement satire. All of this, however, is deeply confusing to me and is deeply disconcerting to me, especially as one who firmly believes in the gospel of grace. After all, isn't it true that the good news of God's grace is now I am free? Now, because of grace, I'm free from the folly of my sin and that of the world around me. And now I'm free to pick and choose this or that or another facet of truth and reality and define it and structure it as I see fit to suit my passions and my personality and my priorities. Isn't that grace? Sadly, though, it is not the gospel of God's grace. You see, that's what grace sounds like when we filter it through the spirit of our age. It's the spirit of Adam and Eve. It's the spirit of Cain. It's the spirit of Lamech and their descendants. It's the spirit that infects me It's the spirit that infects you. It's the the spirit that infects all of us. It's the spirit from whose broken and polluted cisterns we drink deeply every day. The spirit of our age whispers and sometimes it shouts to us, follow your heart. Do whatever makes your heart happy. Whenever it makes your heart happy, wherever it makes your heart happy, however it makes your heart happy, follow your heart, fulfill your destiny. And of course, the settled, assured and so assumed conviction on which which all of this is founded and never questioned is that our heart is our most reliable guide. That our dreams are not, in fact, nightmares overlaid with a shimmering gold plastic facade. That our destiny is fame, fortune, and glory, and not shame and infamy. And that like Minecraft, like a Minecraft world, our designs and plans for our dream life or our happiness don't actually have to account for truth and reality in the world in which we live. We just define it as we see fit. Structure it as we see fit. You don't like that part of reality, don't worry about it. If it doesn't make you happy, disregard it. And it is one of our culture's cardinal sins and capital offenses to point these things out. The problem, though, is that our hearts are desperately deceived and so desperately deceitful. The dreams and the designs and the plans that we put in place in the pursuit of our destiny, that our hearts generate, they are wonderful to watch and sometimes to hear, but so often lead to death and our own destruction. So often they leave you sprawled out on the bleachers, grasping for breath, contemplating calling 911. Because the dreams that we come up with for the pursuit of our destiny don't square with the reality that God has designed and put into place. Not convinced? How is it that we recognize the spirit of our age, shaping even our understanding of the gospel of God's grace? Consider the things that we hear ourselves and one another saying. For example, you might have heard me say earlier, don't tell me how to exercise. I'll exercise when I want, where I want, and how I want, as seems right in my own eyes at that moment. Never mind that when I want and where I want and how I want to exercise actually collides with the realities of life in this world and my body. And so literally destroy me. Or maybe you might have heard me say, don't tell me how to diet. I will diet when I want, where I want, and how I want. Never mind that it takes into, it does not take into account at all how the body is designed and how our world functions. But we apply the same pattern of thinking to our Christian life. Don't tell me how to follow Jesus I will follow him when I want, where I want, and how I want, as seems right in my own eyes, as suits my personality, my passion, my agenda, my season in life, my priorities, my comfort zone. After all, that's what grace is about, isn't it? Or don't tell me when, when where, and how, and who to love, forgive, and to serve. I will love and forgive and serve who I want, when I want, where I want, how I want. That's grace. Never mind that it's on a head-on collision with God's character and his designs for life in his world. Such thinking, brothers and sisters, is not grace. It's the spirit of our age. It's the spirit of the great Gatsby. It's the spirit of Sherman McCoy, the hero in Tom Wolfe's novel *Bonfire of the Vanities*. It's the real-life spirit that plays itself out in the lives of those featured in Michael Lewis's book *The Big Short* about the mortgage crisis that led to the 2008 financial crisis. It's the spirit of John Galt, the hero of *Atlas Shrugged*. It's the spirit of our destiny. It's the spirit described here in the passage in front of us. This passage is one of those passages that terrifies us because it has all kinds of these little strange things in here sons of God and daughters of man and Nephilim. Oh, my word. What do we do with that? Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 8 comes at the end of the first of two cycles in the opening portions of Genesis. The first cycle runs from the end of, from the beginning of chapter 4 through this passage. In which we see the, the deepening and broadening consequences of the sin of Adam and Eve and it deepens and it broadens across generations and across the land spreading out further and further east from eden into the plains of shinar we see it growing even in intensity as adam and eve as adam and eve suspected god's goodness And then that we saw as that suspicion lingers within the family, as Pastor Clay pointed out, and grows until Cain now accuses God of being unfair and being unkind. You can almost hear Cain saying, we always suspected you weren't as good as you wanted us to believe, and now we know. And Cain's anger An accusation against God for being unfair and unkind grows and simmers throughout the generations until Lamech comes and has concluded and judged God on the basis of the suspicion and accusation of being unworthy and so exalts himself and his wisdom and his family to the place of ruler and judge of all. When we follow that line, where does it lead us? It leads us to Genesis chapter 6. It leads us to Genesis chapter 6 through Genesis chapter 5. And we're going to come back to, there, come back to 5. But notice this. What is the real result of suspecting, accusing, and then finally replacing God with our own wisdom? Well, we hear it in the refrain throughout chapter 5. And he died. And he died, 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 and he died. died. (laughs) Death is the unavoidable end of our pride in the pursuit of our destiny as seems right in our own eyes. Chapter 5 is the historic backdrop, and chapter 6 is the historic sort of prologue to the flood account that we will consider in the next week or so. But there's a question here. So who are these sons of God? There's two ways to understand that expression. Sons of God, as it's written in the ESV, or sons of the gods. It could be either one. But let's go with the Son of God, however you you want to read that. And there's there's at least two ways, there are several others, but there are at least two ways to interpret that meaning. One is, does it refer to the line of Seth, which was just recounted for us in Genesis chapter 5? That's possible, although there are a couple reasons, and I don't have time to go into it now, there are a couple reasons to suspect that that may not be the best answer here. But if so, then on that reading... The point would be that even in the line of Seth, as with Eve, the spirit of Cain and Lamech is so pervasive that it pollutes even that line. Alternatively, and this is my preferred understanding, it could be sons of God, meaning... The ancient Near East, the language was used to refer to kings and rulers and princes. Those mighty men of great power who snapped their fingers and your head was chopped off. Those kinds of men. They said it, it was done. Those kinds of men. And on this reading, it would be referring to the tyrannical, unrighteous Um, rulers that are part of the line of Lamech. Those generations that actually embodied the philosophy that Lamech celebrates at the end there of chapter 4. On this reading, the point of the passage would be that the unavoidable fullness of Lamech's arrogance impacts and infects all men wreaking havoc throughout the world. And so, for example, the sons of God, just like Eve before them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were good. It's the exact same word there as when Eve looked at the fruit and saw that it was good for food. They saw that they were good, that they were attractive, they were a delight to the eyes And so they seized them. They stole them. Any as they chose. You can hear the tyranny in those lines there. We see it played out in the news headlines even in our world today. But you see the tyranny and notice the absolute 180 degree contrast... To the account in Genesis chapter 2, where the Lord created a woman and the Lord brought her to the man and gave him to her. I gave, gave her to him. And here they look, they see, they seize as they see fit as is right in their own eyes. Tyranny destroying the world and running rampant. Well, that brings up the next question then. Who in the world are the Nephilim? All kinds of answers. Lots of ink has been spilled over it. But I think that the one that best suits the context and best suits the flow from Genesis chapter 4 through Genesis chapter 5 into the flood account is that the Nephilim is an expression of that, that refers, that uh, they would use, in the same way we would use, for example, titans of Wall Street. The big power brokers. The ones who did mighty works because they were powerful. They had the wherewithal to do whatever it was that they wanted to do. They were giants in the land. They were Nephilim. They were great ones. These are ones characterized by mighty feats of amazing recklessness and carelessness and audacity and violence and arrogance. Great men, one commentator says, of mighty impiety, self-confident, self-reliant, arrogant men whose lives and actions wreak havoc on others and the world around them. These are the offspring of the spirit of Lamech. Tyrants who have given themselves over fully to the spirit of Lamech. Filling the world with tyranny in the name of justice as Lamech defines it at the end of chapter 4. This is the spirit we find embodied in Enoch, the same the, the city named for Cain's son. It's the spirit we find embodied later at, at Babel. It's the spirit we find later embodied in Sodom and Gomorrah. And later we find embodied in Egypt. And later we find embodied in Babylon. And later we find embodied in Rome. It is the spirit of Cain that we see with increasing frequency through the history of Israel and its kings. is the spirit of the city of man in which man sees himself as the measure of all things. I know what's right. I know what's just. I know what's good. Don't tell me when and where and how to live because I know. Like my father Lamech before me, I know justice, I define justice, and I exert justice. It's the spirit of our land. The second one will end with the fiasco at the Tower of Babel. Two cycles to establish the same point, that being verse 5 that the wickedness of man is great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. Every day. It's the four dimensions of our sin. It it soars to heights we can't imagine. It plunges depths of our souls that we can't imagine. And it reaches out to the right and to the left and to the fore and to the aft. cycles to establish the same point. Why? Because we are ever so slow to acknowledge the problem, to acknowledge our sin. And so here's the question, what do we do? And again, Here's the answer. It's not what we do, but it's who he is and what he is doing. Look at this. Their thoughts were only evil continually, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. It grieved him to his heart. So he said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. You can't get much more hopeless than these verses. But Noah found favor. Oh, you're immediately beginning to think, now I see, going on to the next verse, because some of you know where we go. I see I've got to be righteous and blameless in my generation. I've got to walk with God and then I will find favor with God. But brothers and sisters, that is not how the passage unfolds. The passage leads with the favor of God. And then it shows us what it looks like in Noah's life. This language here of favor is the language of grace. Noah. Some of your translations may even read, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So what's going on there? Well, it's important that we again look at who it is that, that finds the favor. It's the Lord. He is the one who has created all things. He is the one who has designed all things out of the overflow of his goodness and the bounty of his love. He is the one who out of the overflow of his goodness and the bounty of his love, came to Adam and Eve in the garden and made a promise. I will fix this. He is the one that we have been seeing. Have you been watching it? Who we have been seeing has been preserving his promise throughout the increasing rebellion of man. We suspect he comes in his goodness. We accuse he has mercy. We seek to seize from his throne, his his rightful throne, and yet he rules supreme. Look at chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he created him in the likeness of man and likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. He blessed them and named them. And then we have a genealogy. And there's two things to note, especially about this genealogy. One, there's that refrain Death reigns, death reigns, death reigns. It's unavoidable, it's the consequence of our sin. But notice this life continues to be preserved. It's true that the years of our life shrink. We go from 930 years to 912 years to 905 years to 910 years to 895 years, 962 years, etc. And there is this notable decline in the span of man's life. Then yet man is preserved by the amazing faithfulness Of the Lord. It is this Lord who, in the face of our rebellion, in the face of your rebellion, in the face of my rebellion, looks and has grace and places upon us the bounty of his favor because that is his delight. That's the one who has made us. That's the one who calls us. That is the one who has made a promise. That is the one who works all things for the fulfillment of his promise. That is the one. Grace, brothers and sisters, is not that we are free to pick and choose from among the various facets of reality, defining and structuring them according to what seems right in our own eyes. Rather, grace, the grace alone by which we are saved, refers not to our freedom to define and structure reality as we see fit, but to the glory of the triune God's great love, most frequently experienced in this world as the mighty works of his steadfast mercy, by which he designed, defined, and ordered the world and all of life in it. It is the power by which he continues throughout the generations to preserve for himself a people, to redeem for himself a people, to restore the world through this people from the effects of our sins. Brothers and sisters, that is our hope in the face of, of the spirit of the age in which we live. It is in recognizing the full dimensions of our pride by which we have been led by the spirit of the age to, sus- to suspect God's goodness, to accuse him of being unfair and unkind, and judge him, and judge him unworthy, and so replace him with our own wisdom. And on the other hand, to turn from that from that and increasingly rest in the goodness and wisdom and trustworthiness of our Lord's good design. For this is our God. This is our Father God. May we and truly be freed from the spirit of our age that we may hear him in the garden. We may hear him speak. We may turn to him. We may come to him We may rest in Him. We may fellowship with Him. And so fulfill the destiny for which we dream. For it is that destiny for which we were created. And so, Father, we...